I've got some great news. It's now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Welcome to Brain Science, the podcast for everyone who has a brain. This is episode 138, and I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell. My guest today is Dr. John Medina, who first appeared on the Brain Science Podcast back in episode 37, which originally aired in 2008. Today we are talking about his latest book, Brain Rules for Aging Well, 10 Principles for Staying Vital, Happy, and Sharp. Even though this episode is less technical than some recent podcasts, I will come back after the interview to review key ideas and to make a few announcements. As always, you can get complete show notes and episode transcripts at brainsciencepodcast.com. And you can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Welcome back to Brain Science. Do you realize that it's been nine years since we last talked, or maybe a little I bit? I think older? it was when Brain Rules first came on. Was yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to talking about your new book, Brain Rules for Aging Well. But before we get into that, do you mind telling me a little bit about what you've been up to since we last talked? Yeah, well, some of it's the same old, same old. I'm still at the University of Washington in the Department of Bioengineering. My research interests are the same as they've always been, the genetics of psychiatric disorders. I've spent a long time thinking about how the brain develops in the womb and then what happens when things screw up and years later a psychopathology comes out. I've written a couple of books on aging. In fact, my first book with Cambridge University Press was called The Clock of Ages. It's hopelessly out of date, and no one should read it. <laughs> but I've also written one on Alzheimer's disease, and then finally this one, Brain Rules for Aging Well. So been up to a lot of stuff, and similar stuff all at the same time, I guess would be the way to say it. Well, then you really need to listen to my most recent episode, because do you know the work of Seth Grant? Oh, you bet. Did you get a chance to interview him? Yeah, and we just talked about his new paper, the one about the genetic lifespan calendar. Oh, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, if that's replicated, that's going to be big. Yeah, he's a, could be up and coming. And if it isn't replicated, he'll still have a chance to get at it. I mean, there's other things to do. I assume you're talking about the uh, one at the University of Edinburgh. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. that's actually the third time I've interviewed him. He's one of the few basic scientists that I interview just because it's easier to interview people who write books, to be honest. You know, it's really funny. If you have his genes to cognition thing is um, we share the same research interest space. But I find that if you find scientists who've chosen to write books about it, what what they do, and it's for a lay audience, they've really learned to uh, put precision and accuracy on different beds of efficacy, if that makes sense. You can't ever lose your accuracy, but sometimes you lose the precision if you have to make a metaphor for audiences that are not medically trained or that are not basic scientists. But he is unusually skilled at making complex things comprehensible. So that's why I interview him, because uh-huh. he can make it so that audiences of diverse backgrounds can get a lot out of it. So that's one thing I really appreciate. And that's one of the things about people who decide to write books is that they have a certain communication skill that is really important. So so you want to talk a little bit about your latest book and give us a little overview? Sure, you bet. Well, the whole idea of actually the inspiration for the book came from essentially two numbers. Here's the first one, Ginger. I'm 61. <laughs> well, I am 61 also, so... Are, are we the same age? Oh, <laughs> yeah. wow. Well, then you've noticed, as I've noticed, that there are certain things that are going on cognitively that are changing. And I've noticed it for a while, and I actually know a fair amount about what's going on with it. I know when I go down to the basement to pick up something from the pantry, and I get down to the basement, go through a doorway, and I completely forget why I was down there. <laughs> 
And I know that happens to lots of people, too. But the question you can ask is, what's up with that? Why does that occur? And because it's that, that uh, memory skill, uh, there, that, that memory experience of forgetting uh, why you did something in terms of working memory is something that erodes as you get older. And so the first one was just to uh, be able to talk about that. Some. But the second one comes from a statistic. That would be the second number. And we know that anywhere between 25 and 33% of the uh, variance in the genetics, if you will, of human lifespan is directly attributable to genetics, directly attributable to how well you chose your parents. But if it's only 33% of the, of, the, of the variance, that means there's a whole lot of it that is uh, your ability to transit through the aging process that has nothing to do with how well you chose your parents, but your lifestyle and kinds of things that you can do that aid in a bet that can slow down, in some cases stop the erosion, and in some cases even improve where you were above baseline. So what I decided to do, Ginger, was to write about that space. What do we know? We know 10 things, I think, about how the brain processes information that would make a powerful sense of being able to fill in that space. And so I decided to write a book about those 10 things. So we'll talk about some of them, and we may skip some of them because I doubt that we have time to do all of them. I'm going to try to focus on, especially on some of the ideas that maybe haven't gotten a lot of press already. Can you start out by just maybe talking a little bit about the basic principles of aging and how it affects the brain, just sort of the big picture? Sure. Well, we've known for a long time that the aging of the brain follows a very particular pattern. Your cognitive peak is probably about between 30 and 35. And then after that, it, there's a slow decline in cognitive processing. We think that natural selection only occurred to about age 30 to 35 and that everything else is genetic. Here's the reason for that, we think. Between ages of zero and 30, your body is, is open for business 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and the metabolic processes create errors. And those errors are usually repaired. For the first 30 years of your life, the repaired people, the repair molecules, can keep up with the damage that occurs. But as you're going through that third decade of life, the repair systems themselves are suffering from damage. And the zero point is probably right around 30, where the repair and the ability to, uh, uh, to, to become damaged and the ability to repair them is equal. After 30, you can forget it the amount of damage begins to increase and your ability to repair that damage decreases. Now, exactly what damage occurs, there's where the individuality, the genetics comes from. But longevity is usually defined as the number of years you have on the planet if you had perfect environmental conditions. And lifespan is defined as the ability to survive on the planet, given that conditions aren't particularly perfect. And that lifespan, which is almost, with humans, longevity is probably 115, 122 years. With lifespan, that fully depends upon the age you're at. It wasn't until the 17th century that it actually got much above 30. And it wasn't until right now that you can substantially live. You can live into your 80s fairly easily in Western culture as a result of doing certain things to your lifestyle. So we think that aging is a fault of the repair systems that have gone awry. And the ability to ameliorate that damage comes from your ability to aid and potentiate those repair systems and get them back online. And like I say, there are 10 things we think we know that actually aid and abet the repair system. And so that's your kind of 40,000 foot view of the book. Okay. One principle that keeps reappearing as I read is the fact that our brains seem to be wired to social, to be social. And so I was thinking maybe you could talk a little bit about how this comes into play in terms of brain health as we age. Well, you're absolutely right that we were built to socialize. In fact, most of us think there's a genetic selective pressure on your ability to socialize as a direct survival mechanism. And that's because we're really wimpy, Ginger. I mean, <laughs> look at your fingernails, right? They don't do well against paper. <laughs> your hair, you know, look at the thermal exchange you have in your environment. Good luck with the, you know, between your legs and underneath your arms, uh, armpits and then on top of your head. That's not impressive compared to a gorilla. Uh, we have lots of weaknesses. So if you want to really become the apex predator, which is what we ended up becoming, you're going to have to figure out a way to, if you will, one way to do that would be to double your biomass. 
you could wait millions of years to get the body column bigger and double your biomass several million years from now, but we didn't choose that route. There's another route that you could easily do that wouldn't take you millions of years, but probably hundreds of thousands of years, and that is change a few brain cell wiring patterns in the brain in such fashion that you could create a social relationship with somebody for the express purpose of making them your ally. And if you can create an ally, you have doubled your biomass, not by doubling your biomass, but by creating a social relationship. So we actually think that socializing relationships is a big deal biologically, and you can actually show that in the aging process. Because as you get older, you usually get lonely. And when you get lonely, your cardiovascular system doesn't work as well. Your, your risk for depression and anxiety disorders increases. And so in the book, we talk about what it is that you need to socialize. And in fact, you can have what are called integration profiles. These are psychometric assays that allows you to actually assess how socialized you actually are. And there are things like family status and the number of friends you have and, and, your, and the number of times you interact with them. And it's been discovered, interestingly enough, that the highest socializing groups in the first uh, study that was done was actually executed over a 12-year period with about 1,000 seniors. The highest socializing group, the rate of cognitive decline was 70% less than those that were in the low socializing group. Memory decline was half that of non-socializers. So we think the selective pressure is still on you. If you really want to have brain health, one of the best things you can do is to establish and maintain your familial relationships and your friendships. In fact, I suggest, uh, uh, this isn't so much in the book, but it's tangential to it. If indeed your cognitive peak is at 30 and you're beginning to decline even then, if you really want to arrest this decline and start getting those benefits early, it behooves even 30-year-olds of the world to learn how to have strong social relationships. And if they're too shy, if they're too introverted to have them, to get out of that so that you can invest in the future when you get older and you still have those friends and you still have those family relationships, you can uh, have a dramatic decrease in your rate of cognitive decline and memory decline. But there are relationships that can be harmful. Oh, most certainly. The kinds of relationships you have to have have to be positive. But interestingly enough, the best relationships in the world, uh, if you want to have a strong ability to change certain cognitive gadgets in the brain, some of these are related to what is called executive function, which is a measure of impulse control and your ability to shift attentional states and a bunch of things. You know, one of the best things you can do, this is the work of Denise Parks, is to regularly get into arguments and engage with people that don't agree with you but that you're still friends with. And to your point that it needs to be a positive interaction, you know what it reminds me of? My wife and I were talking about this when I was writing the book, and this was before Anthony Scalia had died, the American Supreme Court Justice. He had a wonderful friendship with somebody that was directly opposed to him, and that's Ruth Ginsburg. Right. So friendly was that, Ginger, that they actually wrote a play about it <laughs> that the two of them went to see. And that upholding of friendship, even though they disagreed with such strength that it could actually change the future of the United States, even still, that's the kind of thing that Denise Parks gets a hold of when she says, she actually calls it a name, she calls it productive engagement. So if you have a friendship and you have a, a disagreement on a regular basis, that is just brain candy, man. The brain just loves it. And it's a form of socialization. But let's say you're in a family that's not a healthy family, then that could be a tricky situation. No, absolutely. <laughs> but... Uh, I, I think that's way too big of a topic to get into. It's kind of like a tautology for me to even mention it. But when we talk about nourishing family relationships, we do have to recognize that some people have the misfortune of being in families that they're better off avoiding. Yeah, yeah. One of the things you mentioned in the book was the importance of relationship with uh, younger generations. Could you expand on that a little? So powerful is this that it actually decreases your probability of certain types of dementia, including Alzheimer's-related dementia. I'd be happy to. One of the best things a senior can learn to do is to teach and regularly interact with people younger than themselves, an intergenerational relationship. 
The reason why, particularly if they become friends, which means they're interested in those other people, they don't just want to have somebody that they can share their aches and pains with, but somebody that they're interested in, that when they see this younger person uh, struggling with something to help them out, if there is a piece of knowledge that can be imparted to teach them, it's actually been shown, if you can cultivate intergenerational relationships, you can reduce your lifetime risk for Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. We think there's a big reason for that. Socialization is brain exercise. The brain isn't usually like a muscle in my view, but man, here's one place where it can be. If you think about it for a second, Ginger, it's a little bit like having somebody who has an alternate point of view than you. If you regularly interact with a 16-year-old who Snapchats, they totally have a different point of view. They even have a different way of communicating. Right? I mean, they live in the digital space. They live in worlds where they're breaking up every 10 seconds with somebody they wanted to hook up with and they have the attention spans of a gnat. Actually, they don't, but they, they look like that. To be able to regularly interact with somebody like that is brain health. Not just, it, it actually it really helps the younger person too because they're the benefit of the wisdom. But what it really does is a boomerang effect. It just comes right back at you and helps you. So the more you can interact with people that are younger, particularly in teaching situations and listening situations, the better it is for your brain with such strength that it reduces your risk for dementia. Well, I'm glad to hear that because about three years ago, I went back and did a fellowship in palliative medicine. And now I'm working in basically a different field from where I used to. And I now have the opportunity to teach. And I definitely find that extremely invigorating. I know for myself, there's been a great interesting because I teach bioengineering graduate students and occasionally second year uh, medical students, although it's mostly now bioengineering grads. I've noticed something that is absolutely extraordinary that has really invigorated me. And I can see this is an anecdote for something that's much more empirical. If I say something and they don't buy it, Ginger, they'll whip out their mobile phone or their laptop and they'll look it up and they'll see if I'm right or not. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, you can't bluff anymore. Well, there's a level of skepticism that really puts you on your toes. And I said, and I thought to myself, this happened a couple of years ago when I began seeing this, I, I said to myself, this is really forcing me to up my game. I've got to, I mean, I, I feed them facts and I give them the references for sure, but my ability to, on a moment's notice, be, have to be able to prove my particular point of view, I could just feel myself getting younger, Ginger. <laughs> I was going, man alive, this is great. And the studies are really clear. The more you can interact that way, what you do is you're giving yourself a dopamine lollipop. One of the signature components of aging is the erosion of the dopaminergic system. There's not a whole lot of neurons in there, but man alive, do they, do they erode. One way to stop that, or at least to ameliorate or create workarounds, is to continually force those neurons to exercise themselves. And I, I, in lecture, I'll usually call them dopamine lollipops. But here's a big old dopamine lollipop. Some graduate student looks at me with a skeptical eye and says, oh, yeah, Medina, prove it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's terrific. <laughs> Nothing better, buddy. <laughs> so another thing that was in your book that surprised me was um, you talked about the benefits of dancing. Would you talk about that's not on, you know, we're always hearing about foreign languages and musical instruments. Why dancing? Well, we think it's because it's the trifecta. And there are three components that individually also parse out and show benefit. And dancing puts them all together into a single benefit. And that has itself been tested in randomized blinded trials and is found to be very much the sum of its parts. We just talked about socialization, for sure. Seniors need to socialize. Well, what could be more social than dancing? But another thing that's interesting is that and boy, was this a heartbreaker for me because I don't feel 61. In doing some research for the book, I would sometimes go to uh, assisted living facilities or even nursing homes. And one of the things you find is that seniors almost universally feel like they are increasingly made invisible. People don't pay attention to them. People look past them. And one of the things about that invisibility is that, uh, and you can show this, is that they stop getting touched in a non-exploitive, non-medical way. People stop hugging them. People stop just, you know, clapping them on the back. They don't, they don't have the touch. And you can show that if you reintroduce the touch, this was first shown with just gentle massage and then later just social touching, non-exploitive, non-sexual, just touching, that you actually showed changes in anxiety and depression uh, rates in those seniors that were touched. The third 
thing is the exercise component. Ritualized movement forces your posture and your body to improve. And in fact, when you show all three things, when you've got relationships that are uh, socialization that's occurring and you've got touching and you've got exercise, by golly, all three of those, Ginger, are in one activity, and that is get off your butt and dance. <laughs> okay. I think I'm, I have a friend who's really into the tango. I guess I'll have to figure out how to take one of her classes. Well, if you do, you will show posture and balance will improve by about 25% over non-dance controls. Medically, it's important because you reduce the number of falls by 37%. No kidding. You can have all three of those, touching, exercise, and social relationships in a single activity. So, yeah, I suggest over and over again that, and you can't just go out there dancing and sit there and wiggle in front of each other. You know, you actually have to coordinate. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, makes sense. Back onto the dopamine lollipops, talk about gratitude. Oh, yes. This is the work of Marty Seligman. There are two components to it, both of which gives dopaminergic spikes, and you can measure these. The first one Marty suggests in terms of gratitude is that every night when you go to bed, write down three things you're grateful for for the day, or just in general. But not only do you write them down, if you just make it as a list, like you just jot down something, the, the effect Marty shows is not seen. What you have to do is that you have to write down why you're grateful for that event. So if you write down what you're grateful for, say you're grateful for the uh, phone call you had with your nephew. Mm-hmm. And then you write down why. And the reason why is that you realized he's now in college and he's a grown young man and he's made it. And that makes you happy because you were worried about him. (laughs) You know, whatever. You write down why. Marty shows that you can substantially reduce anxiety and depressive disorders simply by taking on in the chapter that uh, I call it the chapter of the make an attitude of gratitude. But he also suggests something else, which is also measurable and has a measurable effect on depression and anxiety in elderly populations. He suggests that uh, particularly if the person is still living, find somebody that really made a difference in your life and you're, that you're grateful for. So that's the gratitude component. You find, you think about somebody that you're grateful for in your life, and you write them a 300-word letter stating why you're grateful for them. And then if it's at all possible, say you live in the same city, find a way to visit that person. Sometimes they may be in an assisted living facility or even in a nursing home. You find that person and you read the letter to them. Usually, both people are in tears. And the reason why is that they realize the warmth, the vitality, and the meaning that people have had in their lives. And that's a dopamine spike of some strength. So being able to develop this idea of gratitude, of being able to be grateful for the things in your life or for the people in your life is a measurable commodity by one of the great psychologists of our era, the father of positive psychology, Marty Seligman. What about our attitude toward aging in general? Oh, yes. Interesting work here. The whole idea of your attitude towards what's happening to you turns out to be a really big deal. If you feel like you are aging and you're creaky and you're getting old, you can show that that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) That in fact, the older you feel, the quicker you'll die. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that, 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 you know, that sort of seems intuitively obvious if you think about people, you know, the graceful agers versus the other ones that that certainly I've never seen anybody that contradicted that principle. Well, you know, what's really interesting about as I walk through the whole of the book and I saw so many of the 10 things that actually do work that change your brain and make you uh, change your all cause mortality rates. I found over and over again, Ginger, a single theme. The more you were willing to become less self-centered, the more you were willing to get into other people's lives, the more you were willing to not focus on your own aches and pains and the things happening in your life, the younger you felt and the better your brain performed. Conversely, 
the more self-centered you were, the more you were consumed by the aches and pains. Now, I realize, you know, like I said, I'm 61 and I already have a bad knee. <laughs> there are going to be some things that are going to be medically difficult to ameliorate. You know, you're not going to get over like you could when you were 25, uh, for sure. But nonetheless, if those begin to consume you in such fashion that that's the only thing you end up talking about. And when you see a young person, rather than asking them a question about how they are and what they're doing and start to form that intergenerational bond, and the first question you can ask them is, what the heck is Snapchat? <laughs> you know, the more you become self-centered, the more likely you are to die more quickly. You'll feel your own aging. And the data are actually pretty clear about that. I actually talk about it in the book, as you know. The strong sense of being able to be outward focused towards other people not only makes your body and brain work better, but makes you live longer as a result. Okay, so that leads into the next question I wanted to ask you about, which is stress and how that affects us as we age. Well, stress is a big old deal. It's a big old deal for anybody, that's for sure. But the whole idea of having stress come over your life is a different experience as you get older. You know, when you're younger, you're going to a lot of weddings. When you're older, you're going to a lot of funerals. <laughs> so you have a stronger sense that life might be ebbing by. And as we discussed in Bray Rules, man, that is like nine years ago, isn't it, Ginger? <laughs> it's been a while. The research is really clear. It's actually not the presence of stress that gets you. It's your ability to feel in control of the stress that gets you. So the more out of control you feel, and as you get older and some things are no longer working as well, that out of control can come at you. That's the stuff you got to work on. And so I suggest in the book something extraordinary. In the last eight or nine years, since the last time we talked, I have become increasingly impressed. Uh, I've always been impressed with John Kabat-Zinn, no question about it, but also increasingly with Dave Cresswell and others who have actually taken John Cabot's ideas of mindfulness and have put some neurobiology underneath it. And now I recommend heartily that most everybody that is beginning to feel out of control over their lives, that they become a minor scholar in John Kabat-Zinn land. <laughs> now, mindfulness mindfulness, which has now been tested in randomized blinded trials and shows powerful effects on anxiety and depression and executive function. I mean, there's all kinds of things that mindfulness does. There's even, I don't mind folks buying my book for sure, but there is a book for your listeners that are stressed that, man, I would really recommend. It's called The Mindful Way, and it's by uh, Teasdale et al. with a forward by John Kabat-Zinn. Believe it or not, this is a workbook that is also a research instrument. It has been used in the past, an eight-week course in mindfulness, to show changes in depression and anxiety and executive function in elderly populations. So I recommend to everybody, because the stress is going to come, you are going to increasingly feel out of control in your life, and eventually you're going to die. That's a, as about as big a feeling of being out of control as I think you can get in the human experience. Nonetheless, Mindfulness, the ability to practice these techniques that John Kabat-Zinn came up with a long time ago. I'll give a quick overview of what some of those are like, mostly because they uh, involve certain types of meditation practice, and certain types of meditations don't work. That's why you have to follow the research instruments in order to get the results of Cresswell and, and Kabat-Zinn in an earlier era. It's as, as you uh, undoubtedly are aware. Have you done a, a mindfulness bef uh, yes, uh, interview yes. before? It's been a long time, but so you might as well start from scratch. Sure. Okay. Well, mindfulness, when you go through the eight-week course, and I'll just give a quick summary of it, but I do it myself and I'll show you a result that happened. First of all, you do your standard deep breathing exercises, which of course is going to change all kinds of uh, relationships in your peripheral nervous system. You do the deep breathing exercises, but mindfulness is actually fairly aggressive. It doesn't ask you to empty your brain. It doesn't. In fact, it tells you to focus your brain. For some strange reason, they like to focus on raisins. So you're literally going to pick up a raisin and you're going to look at it and you're going to stare at it and you're going to take a look at the angles of light that are coming off it and its shape. You're going to find as much about that raisin as you can in the idea of being able to focus on the present. And here's the really cool thing about mindfulness. It'll ask you to focus on the raisin, but mindfulness knows darn well that you're not going to stay on focus, especially at first. 
your mind is going to wander. It's going to wander in all the things that are bugging you. So what mindfulness does is that it's an extraordinarily gentle aggressiveness. It says, you know, that's okay. I know that you're busy. In a very non-judgmental way, come on back. Come on back to that raisin. Look at that raisin. And as many times as you wander, come on back when you're done wandering, and we'll just focus on this because we're going to train you how to do it. And so there's a whole eight weeks about that. The two large characteristics are the ability to concentrate on something and the ability to be non-judgmental about the things in your life. And I'm way oversimplifying. But I will show you, perhaps, or tell you an example that happened in my own life as I began practicing it. As you know, Ginger, I live in Seattle, and Seattle is getting really crowded, and so the freeways are nuts around here. I'm driving to my office at the University of Washington, and immediately, some as I started to practice this mindfulness stuff, somebody cut in front of me, and normally, that just pisses me off. <laughs> For some reason, it just bugs me, <laughs> particularly if it's some old fart in a car who's as old as I am. You know, some young kid, some undergraduate, because I live in a U district. I, I totally can get that, and I don't mind it at all. But you know, if it's one of my colleagues, <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of mercy. And usually, I would just go haul off. But about the third week into this eight-week thing, this is hysterical. As soon as a guy, some guy cut me off, and normally I would just have an autonomic spill on him. Instead, I started breathing deeply, and immediately a raisin came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. And I calmed way down. And I felt it gently just coming back as, as instead of just, you know, honking or being more aggressive or riding his bumper or something I might normally do. Instead, I backed off. And I was gentler towards not only him, but also me. Mm -hmm. And I began to see that even though I was out of control of the situation, by golly, there were some really cool things. And I thought to myself when I got to the office, I was going, man, this stuff's getting reflexive. <laughs> I love it. So I encourage, that is an anecdotal illustration of something that can be shown empirically over and over again in such strength that David Cresswell, who's actually he's a terrific imager and has done a fair amount of work on the subject, can actually show that you're changing the recursive loops. You know, when you get into an anxiety rumination loop, you're just thinking about the bad stuff over and over and over again. This breaks it because it for forces you to focus not on what's bugging you, but on some stupid raisin. Or they actually have something called a body scan. So you're actually looking at various parts of your body for a period of time and calming you down and learning to make that reflexive. So I recommend and put in the book heartily. The stress is going to come because getting older is not for sissies. Nonetheless, mindfulness stuff can really take the edges off it. In fact, it take all the edges off it, off of it and make you glad you're alive. What about that experiment that actually showed that the intentional blink gets shorter? You can show that you can get changes in the ability of the attentional spotlight to work and fixate on various topics. So what you can show uh, as you get older in, this is so related to processing speed that there are actually several forms of this. But in, in general, the attentional blink changes as a direct result of your ability to understand your ability to concentrate. So the attentional spotlight, which as you may know, is a normal part of the attentional state as a neurological relationship between the parietal lobe and broadman area 10 of the prefrontal uh, cortex, you can enhance the attention and get a smaller attentional blink the more you do mindfulness. Isn't that cool? This is part when I said executive function. Executive function is part of, uh, has in it the ability to attend a particular stimuli. After mindfulness-based practices, it changes so many different things that you can actually percolate into a whole range of cognitive functions directly related to executive function. One of the biggies is the ability to look at a whole range of variables and that are all disparate, that are disorganized, and immediately put them into a heuristic where you're looking at just to detail and thus organize your environment. I'm convinced, Ginger, since that part of executive function is a very powerful part of quantitative reasoning, my guess is your ability to do math improves simply by creating a smaller attentional blink and as a direct result from your mindfulness training. No kidding. What about whether this will also extend into the area of memory, because it seems like a lot of times our memory problems are indirectly related to failures of attention. Well, executive function, one of the cornerstone 
components of executive function is working memory. So the ability for short-term memory, to, for a, your ability to attend to a particular stimulus and stay at it for a longer time, is deeply improved every time you show executive function improvement. There's actually another way to get at working memory that completely surprised me, and it's the first time ever in my entire career of writing books, and I think I'm on number 12 now, is a nutritional argument. The reason why I say that is that I have been skeptical for so long about nutrition. I use as my whipping boy, St. John's wort. Go ahead, regulate the thing, will you? <laughs> right? I mean, people buy this stuff off the shelf and they don't know what they're eating. But more importantly, the nutritional work itself has been so woefully underfunded. I believe deeply that nutrition has a lot to say to us. But when you've got complex, you know, even in wine, you do an HPLC and you'll get like a hundred different spikes, meaning that there's all these different chemicals in it, probably a quarter of, of which we don't know very much about. And you ingest that into a metabolic profile that is so uniquely genetic to each person. Yeah, looking at ghrelins and orexins and leptins, I mean, those ratios are all different in different people. Your metabolic profiles are different. The amount of uncontrolled or uncontrollable currently variables is so strong that I thought to myself, you know, I'm not touching this for a long time until somebody can turn it into a science. Well, shame on Dr. Medina. <laughs> I can't say that anymore, Ginger. <laughs> Here's the big reason. A couple of years ago, you may have read this too. Do you read it in the New England Journal of Medicine? And also, it's also there's an editorial about it in JAMA about the Mediterranean diet. Have you, have you seen that stuff? I am vaguely familiar with it. For your listeners who may have not read that stuff in a while, um, when I first read about it, I put the paper down and I said to myself, holy crap, I'm going to have to change my mind about how I view nutrition research. The reason why is that there was a beautiful study started in Spain, and I think it was over on, on this side of the Atlantic also, that showed powerfully with randomized binding trial. I think the first trial was 300, but eventually it, it was much larger. The New England Journal of Medicine actually has in it something called the Predimed diet, showing that those people who ate that stuff had less cardiovascular disease, less strokes, they lived longer. And then when they began looking at it as a dose, i.e. we're going to feed you the Mediterranean diet in a randomized blinded trial, showed that the Mediterranean diet actually improved working memory. No kidding. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time I've ever seen it. That was done in a responsible way in randomized blinded trials with a sufficient end that you were actually tamping down the variables I used to make as a whipping boy all the time. Here's the bottom line. In fact, another one that's come from that, that's called the Predimed diet. There's another one that's now called the Mind diet. This is from Martha Claire Morris working in Dave Bennett's lab there in Chicago. We're able to show that the Mind diet, which is Mediterranean and also is really majors in berries, interestingly enough, dramatically lowers people's risk for developing Alzheimer's. No kidding. So not only are you changing working memory with the Mediterranean diet, you're also lowering the, the pathologies. And again, that's the first time I've ever seen this stuff. Now it's been replicated and now it's starting to be extended. And I said to myself, you know, John, you will do a disservice if you don't put this in your book. So I did. So eat a Mediterranean diet, Ginger. I'm sorry. I am going to take my chances on that one because I am very much a believer in, in going low carb and healthy oils. Well, the Mediterranean diet specializes in vegetables and fruits. It loves them a lot. If you're going to have any kind of meat, it's got to be white meat, as you may know, a little low on the pasta. So maybe that's in alignment with some of the things you're thinking of. And if it has to be grease, it has to be olive. So make it olive oil. And if you're going to have more proteins, it's better to have more nuts than not. I'm always trying to push the boundaries of what I know and to learn as much as possible. I know that's the same for many of you, which is why I highly recommend The Great Courses Plus with its unlimited access to stream or download thousands of fascinating video lectures on topics like science, psychology, history, even cooking and photography. So with The Great Courses Plus, I can learn more about anything that interests me from passionate, engaging experts whenever I want. 
My guest today, Dr. John Medina, actually has a wonderful course in the Great Courses Plus that's called Your Best Brain. John, would you tell us a little bit about that course? Oh, I'd be happy to. This is called uh, Your Best Brain is the name of the Great Courses that I did. It was the first time that they'd ever done something on a green screen. So I, it was totally in an isolated studio where we shot it. And then I just had to point at various things <laughs> to see if it would come up. And I had an absolute blast. Those folks are amazing. The course is all about pretty much just brain structure and brain function and certain kinds of things that we can do that can aid and abet both structure and function. And there's all kinds of things, including some stuff that isn't in any of the books we were talking about. For example, there is a, of the beginnings of a brain science, mostly it's behavioral work, of grief. What do you do for grief? Another one for trauma and stress and one of those kinds of things. I talk a little bit about the teen brain and how the teen brain develops, how sexual feelings are trafficked. And then we talk about what I'll just call the usual suspects, the effect of exercise, the effect of uh, there's actually some mindfulness stuff that's, that's in there and so on. So that's kind of a, a broad spectrum of your best brain. 24 lectures, we did it all together in about three weeks, and I had an absolute blast doing them. I want you to benefit from the Great Courses Plus two. They're offering Brain Science listeners a full free month of unlimited access to watch all of their video lectures. All you have to do is go to my special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash ginger, G-I-N-G-E-R, thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash ginger. Don't forget to check it out. We've talked in the past, I think, quite a bit about exercise and the value of that. And I've had John Rady on, and so we've talked with him, obviously, about the exercise. But in terms of exercising when we're, as we're getting older, is there any particular kind of exercise? Does the kind matter? Uh, yes, it does. Effect sizes on measures of correlation are seven times greater with exercisers than couch potatoes as long as the exercise was aerobic. There are reasons, strong reasons, to do strengthening exercises, no question about it. But that doesn't have very much to do with the improvement of the brain. The relationship, as John was, was able to show convincingly in younger populations, but the work actually started, Ginger, in older populations, whereby they were asking questions, why were the baby boomers segregating into two categories, people that were aging well, and they, was their aging not well, right? I mean, that's old, old work right now, coming out of Kramer's and others, Art Kramer's work, showed dramatically in elderly populations that the more aerobically fit you were, you know, you're going to get the cardiovascular benefits and all the rest of this. You're also going to live longer. But the big thing from a cognitive benefit point of view was a dramatic change in executive function, including memory. So that's we're short-term memory, working memory, but also that attentional blink stuff, just what mindfulness does and the ability to rein in your impulses so that you might really want to give somebody $30,000 for the latest and greatest invention, but instead of being gullible, you are instead smart about it because you can rein in your impulses much better. Uh, get off your butt and exercise. You know, what's amazing about it is how little you have to do, which is why it was measured in elderly populations because you only the aerobic workout is not a workout. You're just walking too fast to sing, on average, a moderate aerobic workout. And you got to do it about, you know, 30 minutes a day, five days a week. So 150 minutes in a seven-day period is necessary and sufficient to get the change in executive function. So, yeah, it's aerobic, and you got to do it all the time. What about video games? <laughs> also something I, that I was reticent to put in the book for uh, the most important of reasons, and that is there's a lot of things in video games that are probably not all that healthy. But I can't say that all the time now, mostly because of some work that was originally done in Adam Gazelli's lab at the University of California in San Francisco and then other places, too. A question I get asked a lot, okay, is does Sudoku work? Should you do crossword puzzles? And the answer is, yeah, it may work. It may not. It's not, it's not strong at all, actually. Better to go out and socialize and get into an argument with somebody you love <laughs> than to do Sudoku, right? But... 
what Adam was the first to show, he did it for a while, he created something called NeuroRacer, and it was so robust, it actually got published in Nature, you know, probably the premier scientific journal in the world. Was able, He created a game. It's like a three-dimensional daylight version of some racing driving game. You're sitting around in a car, and there are signs of things you're supposed to be warned over that various sizes and shapes were coming. There is a, a weapon you can have on your car, which is supposed to shoot down certain shapes. But the rules will change, Ginger, after a while. So you're busy sitting there shooting circles, and it says, nope, don't shoot the circles anymore. Now I want you to shoot the squares or the hexagons and so on. What was found was absolutely extraordinary because you, they saw changes on what are sometimes called far transfer effects. The brain had actually changed, particularly in the PFC, the, the, the prefrontal cortex, to a pattern that when imaged shows a much more youthful pattern than they had prior. So we're doing pre and post stuff. For scores on working memory with distractions test, that's actually what you can show proved dramatically the video game group actually got a plus 100 and the, and the no game controls were at like a minus 100 no kidding but here's the most amazing thing of all oh by the way also your attentional states changed they were stable you play that game for a month then pull off it for six months and then go back and measure you can still show changes in the brain that's why it's called far transfer as if the ability to play this game for a month changed your ability long-term to exercise in what I'll just call the executive function gym. And that was published in Nature, Ginger. <laughs> but they don't sell NeuroRacer commercially, do they? Because I looked for it. Nope, it's not there yet. There's also other video games now that are of a similar way that were tested in a similar fashion since that's come out. There's one that's called Active Video Game. It's been shown that you are 48% less likely to get dementia. This was measured over a large period of time. And my favorite is called Beep Seeker. <laughs> no kidding. Beep Seeker, a video game, a video game that involves auditory spacing where you're trying to figure out exactly what those are. What happens is that you'll memorize the target tone. Then you're going to hear a sequence of tones. And whenever you hear the target, you're supposed to indicate that. That actually is pretty difficult to do. And it's and they aren't merciful with you. With Beep Seeker, you get better at it. The computer registers you're getting better at it. It's going to give you more and more distracting tones, ones that are going to sound increasingly like your target, and you still have to pick out the right target. You can see dramatic changes in working memory, another far transfer effect, if you will, because they're also fairly stable. So we now know that there are some parts of the video game universe that are actually very, very good for the senior brain. And once again, the sensitive parts appears to be the working memory component of executive function. So whereas the crossword puzzles are great to do, not sure how good they are to do, figuring out how to sit in front of a computer and do some video games, that stuff's turning into science. So in the last chapter, you talk about never retire and be sure to reminisce. We've talked a little bit about never retire, but tell us about this reminiscing thing, because that's something that is a little anti-intuitive. Oh, it is, mostly because I think there's a cultural imperative in the United States. We are such a forward-looking culture, which I just love. We're youthful, and we want to do the next thing, and we want to do it right, and uh, we don't want to reminisce and go to the back, except that it's now been found fairly conclusively that the more you reminisce, the more likely you are to get a dopaminergic lollipop. And that turns out to be really good for the brain. Are you familiar with the counterclockwise experiment? Yeah, I mean, that's the one where they put the people in the place where they were at pretending it was 1955 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go through that just briefly. Sure. This is the work of Ellen Langer at Harvard, the first tenured woman at Harvard in the Department of Psychology ever. No kidding. She did something that's very famous and is now called the counterclockwise experiment. She took a bunch of senior men and measured, did all their pre-stuff. So we're going to look at motor skills and we're going to look at cognitive function and a couple other some physiological markers. And then sent them off to what used to be a monastery. It's no longer a monastery, but Ellen rented it for a week. And she filled it with postdocs and graduate students and people that were her confederates for a very particular thing. She wound back the monastery until it was 1959. 
1959, even though I think the first experiments were done in the mid-80s, because she wanted to ask the question, what does the effect of revisiting older memories at a time in what's referred to often as the reminiscence bump, if you were to calculate how good your memory is uh, in terms of both the number of things you remember and the fidelity of that remembering, almost everybody remembers the best at between the ages everything that happened to them at the ages between 15 and 29. It's called the reminiscence bump. So she asked the question, what if you filled a monastery with the reminiscence bump? She got those seniors into a car. And when she got them into a car, there was a radio. But you know what the radio was? Even though this was the mid-80s, it was tuned to the radio of 1959. So you're going to get the hits of 1959. Goes to the monastery where all the Confederates are. And every, by the way, the rule was you couldn't bring any pictures of you except if they were, you know, in your mid-20s and very few mirrors. And you got to the monastery and everybody treated you as if you were 29. Even if you couldn't bring your suitcase up to your room, by golly, they had you empty it. And you had to take like a shirt or a pair of pants one at a time until you got to your room. All right. Throughout the whole week, they were, it was filled with movies of 1959. And once again, the music was playing of 1959. And uh, if closed-circuit television, you could have Dwight D. Eisenhower on there. You would have the uh, Johnny Unitas playing for the Baltimore Colts and <laughs> the Minneapolis Lakers. <laughs> right? Suez Canal issues, you know. Anything that was 1959 and found something extraordinary. They changed. The people that were actually in there were able to show that on almost every way you can measure it, from looking at motor coordination, particularly fine motor skills, to uh, a whole range of cognitive uh, skills, they actually got younger. So powerful was this that by the end, this was actually written up in the New York Times, there were people that had thrown away their canes. <laughs> because they, they were they were all ambulatory, found that their finger length had actually lengthened because now they were exercising them better. And while they were waiting for the bus, when the experiment was over, getting ready to go back to Boston, some of the guys started playing spontaneously a game of touch football, <laughs> something they hadn't done in decades. And this is because we now know the more you reminisce, the more you're going to flood your brain back with the dopamine that has been declining for years. And since dopamine is involved in motor function and it's involved in learning as well as rewards and pleasures, being able to reflood that back in. So at the end of the book, Ginger, I actually recommend that seniors dedicate a room in their house, calculate the reminiscence bump. So get an exposure, which would be anything between 15 and 29 and fill that room with the reminiscence bump with the music of that bump, with the posters of that bump. Eat, for heaven's sakes, those stupid Swanson TV dinners. Remember those? <laughs> <laughs> those spoiled things. Oh, yeah. You know, the smells, the, the olfactory and the gustatorial sensations that you had been printed on between the ages of 15 and 29, and watch your brain change, and no kidding, uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I'm glossing over some of the details, but you can read about it better in the book. But we now know reminiscence is good for you. It's not going backwards. It's actually making your ability to go forward a much more pleasant experience. And that was, that was a big surprise. Yeah. It's counterintuitive. Most, most of us don't think that way at all. That's why you have to do the research, right? Right. <laughs> what else have we left out that you really want to say today? Well, I think just in general, there are lots of things that you can do. For example, dead tree reading. By that, I mean reading a dead tree book. If you can read it 3.5 hours a day or more, you're 17% less likely to die by a certain age, 23% if you do more. The reason why that has to be dead tree is that it has to be single use. You can't break out your iPad and start looking at it, and then an email comes in, and then pretty soon you're, you know, you're distracted. We didn't talk about music exposure, but I'm sure your listeners are familiar with that too. But in one particular experiment, uh, four months of learning to play the piano where they were taught theory and sight reading, and you showed changes in executive function, and people were less depressed. Then maybe one last thing, and that is learning a new language turns out to be pretty important. You know, bilinguals, their onset of dementia is delayed four years, five years compared to monolinguals. And so there's lots of those little breadcrumbs in the book, which we don't have time to go into, but are very much a part of the idea. You know what I'd like to say, if I could say anything in this book? We should redesign the way we do nursing homes and assisted living facilities. If I had a magic wand and could wave it over the entire profession, you know what I would do? I would turn every assisted learning facility and nursing home into a school where all of the stuff 
in the reminiscence bump, calculated to the mean of the, the people that are in there. You would be playing that music all the time. You'd be playing all the stuff of the reminiscence bump, and people would be attending classes regularly and exercising. And you know what? Every Saturday night, Ginger, there'd be a dance. Ha! Ballroom dancing. And places where they can listen to the music that used to make them invigorated and have it invigorate them once again. Yeah, I think there's a little bit has been done with that, but now you've got the science to support it. Yep. And to be able to do it all at once in a single cluster, I think that has not been done. There certainly are places where you'll take a class or places where you might do a dance. But the one place where all of those things are done all at the same time is a school. That's why I think that the metaphor of a school might be better than the metaphor of, of some place to die. If that makes yeah, sense. I see the, what you're uh, saying. Where, where there's a feeling of you're going to learn something new and you can teach people things. You'll eat the right foods. You're gonna, there's a study hall for reading and a library where you can get this stuff done and even a room for video games. How about that? <laughs> and where you can play whatever NeuroRacer comes on. It becomes commercially available or Beep Seeker or the active stuff. You know, you can play those on a regular basis, too. John, what's next for you? I have a book uh, coming out on the teen brain this spring. And so after I finished uh, writing this book, I, was, I actually wrote the two of them at the same time. One of the things that was really cool was that because I was now forced to look at the teen brain, and the question we're asking, it's actually a takeoff on something from Brain Rules uh, years ago, asking questions about what a school would look like, right? Mm -hmm. If there was, mm -hmm. you know, if you took uh, cognitive neuroscience seriously. Well, what, what would a high school look like if you took, now that we know so much more about how the teen brain develops, you know, what would a high school look like? It wouldn't start at 8 a.m. <laughs> it would not start at 8 a.m. It would start at 10 o'clock, minimum. And you would have classes that would be parenting classes for the parents of teenagers and teach them how their teens' brains worked. I would have a mindfulness class in there. I totally would. Mindfulness actually works well in the teen brains. And I would have a strong sense of the idea that taking how the brain works seriously should be the necessary design element rather than you know, some stylistic thing or some fad that's currently uh, going on. And in which case, I'm honking the same horn I honked eight years ago, talking about how the brain works is the ability to change the way we teach. Yeah. So that's that's new. It's 15. And you know what, Ginger? It's made me younger. <laughs> I bet. You have to hang out with the teenagers for a while. And I have. And it's been an absolute, I've learned so much from them. It's been such a, such a fun experience. So that's what's next. Well, hopefully your publisher will send me a copy of that book in a few months. I have done some episodes on the teen brain, but, you know, the science is always evolving. So I'm sure we could do with an update. Oh, well, I'd be happy to come on again. That'd be, that'd be a great pleasure. John, I have really enjoyed getting to talk with you again, and I hope we won't go another nine years before we talk again. <laughs> well, I tell you what, we'll come on, we'll talk about the team brand in the spring. What do you think? That sounds like a plan. <laughs> All righty. Well, Ginger, you have yourself a great day. It is an absolute delight talking to you, and it's fun to hear your voice again. You too. It's always fun to talk with Dr. John Medina because his enthusiasm is contagious. His new book, Brain Rules for Aging Well, is written in a very down-to-earth style, but it's full of useful information. If you enjoy Dr. Medina's enthusiasm, you might also enjoy the audio version of this book. I should point out that although this book is aimed at older readers, the principles are valid whatever your age. I do want to mention a few key ideas that stood out for me. First, we talked about the fact that the human brain is wired to be social. Engaging with others face-to-face -face is cognitively demanding and helps keep your executive functions at their best. Conversely, loneliness is bad not only for your overall health, but also for your brain. This means resisting this temptation to stay home and looking for opportunities to engage with the world and with other people. Dr. Medina also told us that practicing gratitude helps increase the dopamine in our brains, and the evidence is mounting that mindfulness meditation actually improves cognition. In the book, he talks about 
the ways our memory changes as we age, but we focused on things that we can do that help. Besides learning something new, he emphasized the benefits of teaching others. That's something I never thought about, but it is definitely true that teaching others is both challenging and invigorating. Ask yourself, what skill or special knowledge could you share with others? Medina also mentions that reading actual books for more than three and a half hours a day has measurable cognitive benefits. I want to mention that there is an excellent chapter in this book about Alzheimer's disease that includes an overview of current research as well as 10 signs to look for. We didn't get into this, but it's a great chapter. We did talk about diet and exercise. When it comes to exercise, it's surprising how little it takes to make a difference. Anything you do to keep moving is a good idea. One final thought that I want to emphasize is the importance of having a positive attitude toward aging. Although Brain Rules for Aging Well is an easy, fun read, it's also chock full of useful science about the brain. As always, you'll find detailed show notes and episode transcripts on our website at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me email at brainsciencepodcast.com at gmail.com. I also want to remind you that my identity on Twitter, Patreon, and SpeakPipe is Doc Artemis, D-O-C-A-R-T-E-M-I-S. SpeakPipe is a mobile app that will allow you to send me audio feedback straight from your phone, but there's also a SpeakPipe link on the Brain Science Podcast website. Next month, I will be attending Neuroscience 2017 in Washington, D.C. So if you're going to be in D.C. between November 11th through the 15th of 2017, please drop me an email so we can get together. Episode 139 will come out the last Monday of November, and I plan to share some highlights from this meeting. I'm still hoping to visit Australia in 2018, probably in late May or early June. So far, the only definite stop is the University of Melbourne. I've been asking for suggestions from my Aussie listeners, but I also have been thinking about trying to do a small travel group if there's enough interest. So contact me if you think you'd like to be part of this adventure. I do want to take a moment today to express my gratitude toward Lori Wolfson. Lori has been creating the transcripts for both Brain Science and my other podcast books and ideas since 2009. Those of you who use the transcripts know that she does more than transcribe what is said. She also adds many useful links. Unfortunately, Lori's having some health problems which have caused her to give up this job. I'm hoping we'll still be able to continue to have episode transcripts available for premium subscribers and Patreon supporters. If you've benefited from Lori's efforts over the years, I would love to hear your story so that I can share it with her. Meanwhile, don't forget to visit our new sponsor at thegreatcourses.com forward slash ginger so that you can get that free month of access to their entire course catalog, including John Medina's course, Your Best Brain. That's thegreatcourses.com forward slash ginger. It's great to have a new sponsor, but I continue to rely mainly on your support. So I have to take a minute to review how you can help. If you're a new listener, signing up for the premium subscription at $5 a month is a great choice because it gives you access to the entire back catalog and all the episode transcripts. For long-time listeners, Patreon is great because it allows you to make a monthly pledge and you get to choose the amount and you get new episode transcripts. Premium and Patreon supporters also get occasional bonus audio. Of course, if you prefer to make a direct donation, you can do this via PayPal or a check. 
Links for all of these choices are available at brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. But don't forget that even if you can't support the show financially, you can help by sharing this show with others and by posting reviews in iTunes and similar locations. Finally, I need to remind everyone to subscribe to Brain Science in iTunes, even if you currently listen via the free Brain Science mobile app or use another podcasting application. The reason that this is important is that Brain Science has recently fallen off both the science and medicine pages in iTunes. And that's related to um, the subscribers that are seen by iTunes. So getting back on these pages is really important for uh, getting new listeners. So don't forget to subscribe in iTunes. Also, don't forget to send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to talking with you again next month. Brain Science is copyright 2017 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You may copy this to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Music